The world of agriculture technology is vast and constantly evolving, with new innovations and companies emerging at a rapid pace. At AgTech Media Group, we understand the importance of staying updated and connected in this dynamic industry, and that's why we're thrilled to announce the launch of our new AgTech Company Directory, a comprehensive and user-friendly resource designed to help you navigate the complex landscape of AgTech innovators. More than just a list, it's a curated collection of companies leading the charge in transforming the AgTech sector from startups pioneering new farming methods to established companies adopting cutting-edge technologies. Our directory spans a wide range of leaders dedicated to advancing agriculture through technology. Whether you're a farmer looking for the latest in crop monitoring tools and investors seeking promising ag tech startups or a researcher interested in sustainable farming practices, ag tech directory is designed to cater to your specific needs. You can filter by sector, technology, size, or location to find exactly what you're looking for. To learn more and to claim your company listing, visit agtechcompanies.com. If you are starting a vertical farm and don't know where to begin or which technology would suit your needs, then reach out to the experts at Cultivated. As indoor farm brokers, they help connect you to the right technology and ensure your project is successful. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Visit cultivated.com to learn more. And that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com or click the link in the show notes. Overall, the different jobs I've had that, look, you do your best to always keep customers happy, but it's not always going to work out. There are times when customers are just going to be furious. That's a great opportunity to get closer to a customer. That's what he would always say to me. You know, don't be afraid of negativity and don't be afraid of, you know, aggression, you know, absorb it and do something with it rather than let it intimidate you. Welcome to the Vertical Farming Podcast, weekly conversations with fascinating CEOs, founders, and ad tech visionaries. Join us every week as we dive deep into the world of vertical farming with your host, Harry Duran. Vertical Farming Podcast, Season 3. Welcome back. If this is your first time listening, you're in the right place. This is the show where we interview fascinating CEOs and founders of the leading vertical farming companies from around the world. I'm your host, Harry Duran. In case you missed last week's episode, we had a really fascinating conversation with Hiroki Koga. He's the co-founder and CEO at Oishi Berry, and they've been making a big splash in the vertical farming world recently, having recently come out of stealth mode. So lots of fascinating topics, specifically around the strawberry and the intricacies with the prefectures in Japan, a whole bunch of things that are really fascinating that I didn't expect to learn during this episode, but I was really impressed with uh, Hiroki's takeaways and how he ended up with Oishi. Fascinating stuff. This week, I welcome to the show David Cohen. He is the CEO of Fluence by Osram. We talk a bit about David's eclectic background in the LED lighting industry and the circuitous route that led him to Fluence. David reflects on the learning curve he experienced best practices for scaling extremely quickly, which is something that he's now a subject matter expert in, how Fluence was able to pivot to the things his organization needed to do in the midst of COVID, and we learn a little bit more about Fluence and what's driving David's recent thoughts about innovation in the LED industry. Special thanks to our episode sponsor, Indoor AgCon. Whether you're starting up or scaling up, Indoor AgCon can help you grow your vertical farming business. Live and in person this year, the premier trade show and conference for vertical farming and controlled environment agriculture heads to Hilton, Orlando, October 4th through 5th. Explore a expo floor filled with new product resources and business solutions. Attend idea-packed educational sessions led by top CEOs and thought leaders and connect with peers at great networking events. Learn more and take advantage of early bird registration discounts at indoor.ag. And you can save an additional $100 off registration with our promo code VFPOD2021. And we'll list that in the show notes as well. Don't forget to sign up for our weekly newsletter at verticalfarmingweekly.com. Each week, our team member Daniel is bringing you the latest and greatest in the world of vertical farming. We've got a new review in this week from Norway, and it's from CamB88. And Cam says, a very interesting podcast, quality interviews, and understandable also for people like me with limited background knowledge about vertical farming. Thank you for your review titled Quality Work, Cam. I appreciate you taking the time to write one in and for being a listener of the show. Don't forget, if you'd like your review read out, 
head on over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. I'd love to read yours out next. Okay, let's get into this conversation with David. So David Cohen, CEO of Fluence, thank you for joining me on the Vertical Farming Podcast. No, my pleasure, Harry. Thanks for having me. So just start the conversation. I'm curious what the best thing is that's happened to you this past week. To me personally? Yeah. I arrived at a beach house that my family and I are going to be at on the coast in New England for a month. It was spectacular. Yeah. So I got here and it was uh, raining and 40 degrees. And uh, as soon as that ended, it's been beautiful and sunny every day. So as much as the work is intense, I can walk outside and put my feet in the sand and look at the waves and ground myself and then come back to the insanity. So that's probably the best thing that happened to me this week. Well, it's something I was going to ask you about earlier. So this might be a nice segue. One of the one of the things that caught my eye when I was uh, looking at one of the, the bios was how some of the changes and, and decisions you've made later on in life were based on your, quote, deeply rooted fervor for health and wellness. And you mentioned and grounding. So I'm wondering what that journey to health and wellness has been like for you? Well, for me, it started probably almost 30 years ago. My father had a heart attack at a very, very young age, close right before he was 50. I was in my early 20s, and uh, I was always you know, health conscious, fitness. I was a, you know, played different athletics when I was in high school, but the doctors uh, pulled my brother and I aside and let us know that, unfortunately, genetics was the overriding factor here, and that uh, if we wanted to try to avoid a similar situation, which resulted in a triple bypass and quite a bit of health stress, that we should really start taking care of ourselves as much as we can. And that kind of started for me just regular moving activity and has graduated as I've gotten older to a lot of meditating try to do yoga with my wife as much as I can, just uh, centering stuff. And it's just a, like you say, it's a journey, you know, just constantly staying after it, making sure that, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, having a little fun every once in a while, but generally speaking, try to take as good care of myself as I can to weather the, at least the pre-COVID uh, traveling and flying. And, you know, there's a vertical farm or an indoor grow everywhere in every corner of the world that wants to talk to us. And, you know, I just find that being at, at my best uh, physically and mentally is always an advantage. Do you notice, or people that are close to you, be able to describe the difference between uh, pre-awareness of wellness, David, and post-awareness <laughs> of wellness, David? Probably not, only because okay. it's been so long okay. that you know, the people that knew me back then don't really know me <laughs> anymore. But yeah, I just... People would uh, overall describe me as pretty intense, and I'm one of those people that uh, crack a dawn before the sun comes up. I like to have get my hour of intensity in and sit and have a cup of coffee, gather my thoughts, and then attack the day. So it just happens to work very well for me. Does that come from just a function of how you were raised or just people, mentors along the way, that discipline, that early morning discipline? Probably along the way, you know, and just the way... My life is kind of settled. I, you know, thinking back when I was young, there was no possible way you could get me out of bed at 5 a.m. You know, I was the get out of work, go to the gym at seven o'clock and or play basketball or whatever with my friends. And now I just, I don't know, my eyes open and it's time to go. And uh, I find that if I don't get that certain level of intensity in the, the kind of the built up intensity that is going through with my thoughts and the things that I want to get done become harder to sort through than if I just take that hour and really bear down, you know, clear, clear the, I don't know how to say it the best way, but the clear, the, yeah, <laughs> clear the waves and uh, make yeah. it so, you know, just uh, thinking and processing for me. I, it's strange. I find even on nights where I don't sleep very well, if I go and exercise, I get through the day, no problem. If I don't, I feel slow and sluggish all day. So it's just something that works for me. Different people, different things. And even if I can't go and exercise, I'll go for a walk or I'll, I'll definitely try to breathe and, and meditate, even if it's for just a couple of minutes, just to get centered. And it, yeah, it seems like it would be something that you'd want to do or that you've disciplined yourself to do in order to reset or, or that control alt delete, I guess, to, to ensure. It's exactly that what it is. That's a really good way to describe it, control alt delete. And I've just found that I've become more and more dependent over the years on it as my working life becomes more intense and the magnitude of the decisions becomes more significant. I don't know about more intense, but the decisions I'm making today is 
professional or much different than the decisions in magnitude that I was making 20 years ago. And I, like I said, for me, everybody's got what works for them. But for me, what works is clearing everything out first, you know, really trying to focus on breathing and getting through a workout and then a cup of coffee and boom, I'm ready to go. <laughs> or two or three cups of coffee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, staggered throughout the day as well. What is your beverage of choice? Coffee and water. Black coffee. coffee water. Okay. Yeah, that's it. Well, we'll get into vodka, but me, you got to get to know me better before I start to declare in those details. <laughs> that's, that's fair. Yeah. I'm wondering if you felt like this, you've always been someone that's driven. I noticed uh, obviously there's a, a lot of education in your background and even like the things that you were studying back then. Did you always feel like even when you were in high school that like leadership and running your own company was something that you were destined for? I always felt like I wanted to do something that had a leadership component to it. I think when I was younger, it had to do more with status and accomplishment, you know, wanting to be in that type of position and not really understanding what leadership was and what responsibility and accountability really is. I think a lot of, you know, young driven people want, they think they want something, but really understanding what it's about and why. I think comes with a certain level of maturity. And as I got older, I'm still fascinated by leadership, but for different reasons than I was when I was younger. I, you know, when I was younger, it was more about being that person, being in that role that I could always see, wow, I want to have that job. I want to do what that person's doing. And I don't know when that changed, but over time, it's more evolved into, I've seen and done so much. I've been very fortunate to live in, Asia and work there and have a, raise a family there, spend five, six years in Europe. I feel a compelling urge a lot of times to pay that forward, you know, use that to help other people maybe have to experience a few less mistakes on the way just because of the experiences that I've had. So for me, leadership now is is more about sharing everything that I've been fortunate enough to learn from great, great people over the years and hoping that maybe I can be one of those people in somebody's journey that helped them you know, a little bit, save them some time or open a door for them that they didn't know was opened, which I've been really, really lucky over my career that I've had a number of people kind of just poke me on the shoulder and say, no, door's right over there. You just got to open that one. <laughs> you know. Speaking of that, can you think of a, a name or two or someone that's had a special relationship for you, either as a mentor or someone that you've learned from? Yeah, I've got uh, a lot of great people. And, and I put all of those people in the same bucket, even people that I had really bad experiences with. I've Sometimes I've, you know, in the middle of those experiences, I didn't really like it that much. But being able to reflect on my career, the people that gave me the hardest time helped me as much as the people that helped me. But I got a job right out of school with a company in uh, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. And I was extremely lucky that I was at that company for close to 21 years. It was a very small family company. And I got in the door when it was just a couple of million dollars. It was a local contract manufacturer. And over the years, we just did a lot of things right, got lucky, grew it to $40, $50 million. And I kind of grew up my career at that company. And that entire time, I worked for a single person. I just spoke to him this morning. Oh, I don't oh, work there right. anymore. And we're still very, very good friends. The gentleman's name is Nick Scarfo. He hired me. And as he moved up, he brought me up. He eventually bought the company from the family. And what I learned from him was all of the pieces of me that I didn't have. He was just a notorious, uh, great street fighter is what I call it. You know, there's people in business that just have an incredible amount of formal training skill. And there's people who are just really, really good in, in interactions and negotiations. And I learned yeah. so much from him that I still use to this day. And then there was another gentleman that I had a very short stint at a big global company called Future Electronics. Uh, I was heading up their lighting activity in Europe. Uh, we're based in London. And um, I had a mentor at Future. This gentleman's name was Dan Casey, and I still talk to him as well. And these people helped me, you know, almost every time that I could think that I was at a crossroads, I contacted one of two or three of the people in the network and said, hey, what do you think? You know, and they're just always there to help. So I feel like I'm really blessed to be able to have that type of influence in my career. And I would like nothing more than be able to pass that on to 
you know, to somebody else. To me, that's more about leadership than being in charge, being the boss, you know, being the final say is what you want when you're younger. But then you realize <laughs> as you get older, it's, it's not really all about that. It's you know, trying to get a group of people to to execute on something that they have to fully buy into. Consensus. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So I'm curious, as you were describing the, the relationship with those with those couple of folks that you worked with, I imagine they start to color how you look to pay it forward and have people look up to you and possibly, you know, ask you for mentorship or guidance. And then I'm sure you think about those relationships that you've had and that colors your experience. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting because in that particular case, those two gentlemen, they're just, they're polar opposites. The guy that I grew up under and learned for those 20 years was, you know, look, he went to college, he has a degree, a really smart person, but he was very much a street smarts person reading situations. And just learning to, you know, be a bit more combative at times, be a bit more confrontational. You know, I didn't know any of these things and I watched and learned a lot from him. And then uh, the other gentleman, Dan at, at Future was just your steady as you go. Nothing flustered the guy. I mean, you could literally come to him and say, I mean, your house just exploded. What are you going to do? And okay, well, we got to solve this problem. Let's think about one of those guys. And, sure, sure. you know, you need both of those, right? The first one was just like, forget it, you know, just chaos, mayhem, get in there and, you know, figure out how you win in a situation where everybody's confused. And he's the guy you very, want in the trenches with you. Yeah, it's a really valuable trait. And if you don't know how to seize opportunity in chaos, I don't know where you can learn that. There's no course that teaches you that. I learned that from somebody that was fantastic at it. You know, when I, when we saw things that I thought were bad, he would always say, no, no, this is a great opportunity. And, and I still use that line, you know, over all the different jobs I've had that, look, you do your best to always keep customers happy, but it's not always going to work out. There are times when customers are just going to be furious. That's a great opportunity to get closer to a customer. That's what he would always say to me. You know, don't be afraid of negativity and don't be afraid of, you know, aggression, you know, absorb it and do something with it rather than let it intimidate you, which was a fantastic lesson. And then on the other side of it, the other guy, Dan, was just, he was very, very astute at reading the trade winds in big companies and understanding, you know, it's going this way over here and this way over there. And you got to position yourself in a certain way to make sure that you can keep everything going. And um, yeah, if there's a chance that I can help anybody along the way, I feel like it's my responsibility now. You know, I, those things came to me through a lot of good luck, through a lot of, you know, hard work, but you still are, when you have the opportunity to come across people that really help you, it, it's a great feeling. I had a similar relationship with someone and I worked in corporate for 20 years. I was at JP Morgan Chase and E-Trade and I called him my corporate godfather. <laughs> he ended up being my boss in five different roles at two different companies. Um, so I can definitely relate to it. I would say Dan Casey for me was exactly that person. And the other guy, Nick, was more like a trainer in, in a boxing match who would just, you know, throw water on your face, slap you in the top of the head, be like, it's all okay. I know get you feel like here. you're about yeah. to die in this fight, but go get him, <laughs> you know? And you need a little bit of all of that. You have to understand how to manage adversity. You know, when everything's going good, it's it's actually not that hard. You no, know, it's when it gets sticky and having confidence in yourself, being not afraid to make decisions, not afraid to make bad decisions, right? And how to keep people aligned behind what you're trying to do. And that's invaluable. You, I don't know that you can learn that in school. You, it's No, they don't teach yeah. that in school. <laughs> no, no. And you got to be, you can't be afraid to fail. And that's another thing that, that's a big you one. know, that fear of failing. It's not, you know, fail. Go ahead, figure it out. You know, and having people that are, allow you to brush yourself off, do a little bit of, self-reflecting and move on. That's a massive confidence builder that I found over my career. Yeah, I sort of had to relearn some of that as I went, because now as an, I'm an entrepreneur, this idea of failing fast and just getting up faster and just being like, okay, that's that, messing yourself off and saying that didn't work. What's next? We're going to try. Yeah, what's next? Failure is, it's a part of success as far, in terms of I view it. There's no such thing as perfection. So Yeah. So changing gears a little bit, I'm interested for you to describe what it was like to be at Fran. Is it Fran? Fran? Fran. Yeah. Frain. Like F-R-A-N-E yeah. pronounced like that. Okay. Yeah. At Fran in the 2000s when LEDs were just starting to pick up. And like, how do you prepare for something like that? And did you know like what was about to happen? It was crazy. And I'll work backwards. No, we had no idea. So we were in the middle of trying to expand globally our automotive footprint. So this was a company that made 
pieces for the dashboard of cars, typically the needles, the speedo, the gauge, tachometer. So these are small little light pipes. Over the years, the technology by the 2000s evolved that these little pieces of plastic sat on your dashboard and there was an LED light behind it. And that shined up through the piece of plastic. And when you're driving down the road, you know, you have to have, nobody knows this, but when you're dealing with Ford and Chrysler, you know, you've got 50 people standing around with a magnifying glass looking at this piece of plastic that costs like 18 cents That's trying funny. to find, you know, microscopic defects. <laughs> we had a really good relationship with the companies that made the LEDs for cars in the late 90s and early 2000s. We were getting ready to expand in Europe. We hired a team of people in Italy and they were working very closely with LumaLeds who had just invented or just released, I don't know if invented is the, the proper word, but the first high-powered LED. So it was like a $10 LED that they flew out to our facility and they showed it to us and said, look at this thing. And it was so bright, you know, it was this massive glowing piece of, you know, computer chip. And they said, we need to figure out a way how to take all of this light and put it in a spot. Can you help us? And that dragged us into LED. I mean, unprepared, un, no strategy, no plan, no five-year vision. They just showed up and said, help us. We took it on. We invested a couple of million dollars and made uh, tooling to make these pieces of plastic that went on top of these eight, $9 LEDs. Yeah. And instantaneously, we became the optics company for high-powered LEDs. And oh. the business went from you know a couple of hundred thousand dollars a year to tens of millions of dollars which kind of shot us into a growth mode that the company had never really experienced before. That was the direct thing that sent me over to Asia to go find factories and find partners so we could scale this thing. And it really, I would say that was, I had already been working for 15, 16 years at the time, or maybe a little bit less, but that was a springboard. You know, that got me into Asia and traveling around Europe and talking to people that industries that were growing like hyper fast because I was 20 years automotive. Automotive was, yeah. you know, four or 5% a year. You made the same amount of parts. They built the same amount of cars. It was very, very predictable. You had to be spot on with efficiency and quality. When you get over to the LED side and they started saying, okay, now we can make street lights with LEDs and down lights and indoor lights and all this. It was as fast as you could possibly go. And that's where I you know, cut my teeth on learning how to grow a company really, really fast. And I talk about failing fast. You know, you talk about making dozens of mistakes every day because um, you just don't know. Yeah, you just don't know. What are some of the highlights or maybe a, a, a low light <laughs> that you remember? Yeah, I remember time? quite a few. <laughs> quite a few that I don't talk about that much. But, you know, getting over to Asia and, you know, trying to by myself, the company sent me, my wife and daughter and cat and said, wow. go figure it out. I mean, there wasn't an infrastructure. There wasn't a company. There wasn't anything. I had to go get my own visa, you know, establish all these relationships and establishing relationships with factories that knew who we were, that wanted to do business with us, but not understanding how to figure out if they were the right partner. We had to go so fast that we wound up investing in a bunch of different places just to see which one would work. And at one time, it seemed like they were all failing. And we were on the hook for you know massive deliveries and support. And there was a couple of month stretch there where I was literally sleeping on the floor in factories in China next to machines that were supposed to be making our parts. Wow. You know, I'd just lay down on the ground. I was so tired. I'd just doze off and then I'd wake up and catch the next part off the machine and look at it and make sure it was okay. And thinking to myself, boy, I went and got a master's degree to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and I had an MBA too at the time. So, wow. but I mean, you to, hey, you learn, you learn. Sure. And that was some of the most valuable lessons that I've ever learned in my life, for sure. Being on the ground there and dealing with that type of adversity, you know, 12 hour time difference. And yeah. Yeah. So that would be the thing that I remember the most sleeping Did on the time floor. <laughs> that'll be something you definitely don't, don't forget did you have time to take in any of the culture because i you mentioned a lot of countries that you did get to visit as, as a result of this yeah fantastic yeah well I'm, I'm lucky that i'm married to such a great person because she would not allow these things to turn into just all work like you dragged us here and we're here to support you but we are going to explore so we spent a lot of time exploring southeast asia all the different areas around there and the cultures and then we were in europe we were in italy Netherlands and London and yeah, very, very lucky. 
And talk about uh, an amazing experience to raise a child in. Yeah, he was born. Our daughter was came with us to Hong Kong. She was uh, five, but my okay. son was born there. Wow. Yeah, yeah, born in Hong Kong, and then we moved directly when he was about a year old to Italy. He was uh, a year there. We went back to the U.S. for a very short stint, and then we were back in the Netherlands, and then in London. So it was, yeah, culture, the experience, the children got to learn a lot of different things. You know, it. Well, as with anything, a lot of great came of that. And there's things that I think my kids are going to be forever better for. Sure. But along with it, it was a lot of stress, you know, moving from country to country and starting your life again and finding the pharmacy and the doctors and the supermarket and figuring out the language and the money and the cars. And it's it's a lot of stress. I mean, people look at these things. Oh, it must have been so glamorous. You lived in Italy and you lived in. Yeah, it was wonderful. There's no doubt about it. But it was hard. Yeah, it was really hard, especially when in Italy, my son got the measles and you oh, know, wow. we were in an emergency room in Italy and doctors, you talk about a, <laughs> a TV show experience. So yeah, it was a lot of great things that we look back and laugh, but there was there's trials and tribulations, that's for sure. So now as you're moving forward in your career, talk about when you're starting to have conversations with uh, the team at Fluence and how you're starting to become aware also of what's happening in the controlled environment agriculture market. Yeah, so I would say towards the end of 2017, I had come back to the United States and was hired by a big European uh, lighting company that wanted to really blow out their a U.S. presence. They didn't have a, a strong presence there. So they hired me away. We moved back from Europe, took over this company, closed down some of its operations in uh, the Northwest and moved into Texas and took advantage of a lot of economies of scale. And then suddenly I find out that the this 100-year-old family company has fired the CEO. They're questioning all their strategy. Stay tuned. And then two weeks later, we got a call that said the U.S. is closed. That's it. We're terminating every... I just hired like 25, wow. 30 people. First time in my life that I had ever found myself very fortunately out of a job and started kind of pinging my network and seeing, all right, what do I do here? What's going to happen? And a, one of the mentors that I didn't mention was working for an investment bank, helping them understand if this small little company in Texas was ready to be sold. That company was Fluence. I didn't know it at the time. And he called me and said, look, I, I'm not sure about this yet, but this might be something you want to take a look at. This is right up your alley. They're going to scale. They need somebody who's you know global experience. They've kind of hit the jackpot here with uh, cannabis. They're really getting into controlled environment agriculture. I know you don't know anything about that, but you're an LED lighting guy. You know how to scale businesses. Go take a look. And that was uh, the introduction to the founders, okay. Fluence originally, before they sold it to Osram. And I probably met with them three, four, five times. I don't know. It could have been 10, but it seems like three <laughs> or four times about joining and helping them. And they were at that point where they were very successful. They had grown the company, but they've got to that level where it was time to sell or raise money. You know, they just couldn't keep up. And they had decided that they wanted to sell. We couldn't reach an agreement on how I would participate in helping them get ready to sell so I took a consulting job with another big European company for like six months, and then they sold Fluence to Osram. I was kind of disconnected from them for a couple of months. I got a phone call to 4th of July, right around there. It's the guy, hey, how you doing? Like, oh, I haven't heard from you in four or five months. What's going on? I sold the company to Osram. I gave them your resume, and I told them that you should be the CEO. Good luck. And he hung up. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Half an hour later, the Osram guy called me. I interviewed and got the job. They were really fortunate. Wow. I had known Osram, and Osram at different levels of the organization had known me because they'd been in lighting so long. It's kind of a small world. Not horticulture lighting, but just LED lighting in general. And brought me in and, you know, uh, the crazy ride started uh, the middle of 2018. Osram was intent on growing this business as fast as possible. And, uh, yeah, that's what got my career started at Fluence. So really crazy. And learning uh, photobiology and 
controlled growing and vegetables and cannabis on the fly. <laughs> I mean, I was a street light guy and, you know, inside theater lighting and museum lights, the uh, my frame had done an optical project to light up the Mona Lisa. That was my biggest oh, wow. thing that I had ever oh, done nice. standing in the Louvre. We built this optical system, but nothing like this, you know, now, now going around into cannabis grows and tomato greenhouses and vertical farms. And, but at the end of the day, it's LED lighting. There's a definite science to it for sure when it comes to growing things and understanding that relationship. But you know, scaling is scaling. You know, when you want to go from slow to fast, from small to big, from Texas to Canada to Europe to Asia, you need to follow kind of the same footprint. And uh, I'm lucky that my experiences over the years were really well suited to help the company do what it wanted to do. So I um, imagine there were a lot of surprises along the way, not the least of which is how surprised were you at the size of the Mona Lisa compared to what you thought it looked like? <laughs> yeah, it was very surprising. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, what, what was really surprising is the amount of detail that the people who are in charge of these types of things that they pay attention to. So, oh, you know, yeah, really, really seriously, you know, staring at a painting for 30, 40 minutes seems like a lifetime to me. Staring at a painting for 10 days straight is something totally different. And there are people who that's what they do. Yeah, that's what they do. At that point, I imagine the Mona Lisa starts staring back at you. So. Yeah, it starts talking to you at that point. <laughs> you start hallucinating. <laughs> so you, it didn't seem like you were that phased going into a new industry. Is there anything that stands out for you when you think about LED lights, you know, coming from entertainment street lights? And then the way it, it was being applied in the world of controlled environment agriculture, what were some of the things that were different about how those are handled or what the implementations would be like that stood out for you? Yeah, see, I had come from the world of lumens and output and brightness and intensity. It Controlled environment agriculture is different. It's photons with lighting. It's, you know, how do you get the most photons from the fixture to the plant? And then how can you manipulate the delivery of photons in different spectras to get plants to perform differently? And this was completely, I'm foreign is beyond the way to describe it. I, I didn't understand it. I remember I got up in my first conference to speak and the, my biggest panic was, you know, remembering how to pronounce the difference between photo period and photo acclimation and all of these words that, oh, is just for somebody like me, it's, I had never been involved yeah, and, and learning yeah. the biology, the basic biology behind it, well, remembering it from college and trying to, you know, be able to have conversations with people in the space. But, you know, like anything else, what I found is that it was a very exciting industry. The people in it were not looking at it from a competitive standpoint. They were looking at it from a help the world standpoint. You know, they were really committed to doing something bigger than, you know, helping the greater good. And everything in my career up to this point had been transactional. You know, it was selling to somebody who wanted to buy our stuff and, you know, trying to get the best price and trying to get the best terms. And this has been, for me, just an incredible experience of just dealing with people. Now, look, growers want to grow and there's an efficiency, profitability aspect to it that's critically important. But generally speaking, when we're talking to a customer, that customer is switched on to, you know, growing things and helping people. And that's just a very, very different world than automotive and streetlights and museums and everything else. And it's just been a very, very refreshing change because all the other business stresses are still the same. You want to grow, you want to be efficient, you want to deliver, you want to make money, keep everybody happy. But when the, you know, the general undercurrent of the customers you're dealing with are either to, you know, help people who are sick medicinally or, you know, or even recreationally want to enjoy cannabis to food safety and delivering food. And, you know, then you get into the vertical farming and how you start to reduce the carbon footprint globally of things. It's just a very, very different situation. And it's been great. Uh, opened my eyes to something that I actually didn't think existed in business. So it's been really nice. What's been a common thread as in these conversations is the realization that we need more people in the space. And yeah. you alluded to this idea of like not feeling competitive, rising tide lifts all boats. It's been, I feel like that theme has been persistent because I think the scale of the problem that we're trying to tackle here in terms of getting food to people that uh, don't have immediate access to it, like we assume sometimes people do. And when you think about food deserts and access to fresh food, it does become interesting to see that 
all these technologies, all these companies together are marching towards that, you know, somewhat same drum in, in terms of trying to do what's right and do something positive. Yeah, I agree with your statement at the beginning there that this is going to need a lot more talented people. I think that I think the natural evolution of an industry that was somewhat small and niche niche to really move into the center stage in the short amount of time that it did. And you start to talk about like I never had heard of what a food desert was until I started to work at Fluence and understand the relationship between arable land and the population and how are we going to solve these are not kick the can down the road issues. These are right now issues. And it needs a lot more great people. It really does. I think that the capital to affect this type of change globally is available, but you need really great people to step in and say, you know, I'm going to take a chance here. I want to do something that's right. I don't know if it's going to be successful or not, but we're going to go do it anyways. And that's just why I have just an enormous amount of respect for looking at people like, you know, Irving Fain at Bowery and, you know, people that start Aero Farms and Farm One and everything. We're doing a lot of business with similar things in Singapore and, you know, companies in Japan. These are really committed to a cause here. And it takes starts and ends with great people. You need somebody to take that charge and say, I'm going to do it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to I'm speaking to David from Aeroforms in a couple of weeks. So it's going to be interesting to kind of continue to tease out that thread and see, you know, how everyone does start to work together. Given you were new to the industry, were you able to make it to conferences? And, yeah, and, and I did. I spent the, the first, yeah, <laughs> first two years of working at Fluence, I was on the road constantly. I did something like uh, 300,000 miles in 2019, just an insane <laughs> amount of travel. But I would go to every conference I could and soak up every piece of information I could from people that I felt were changing the world. And that starts with even small little growers that they didn't really think that they were changing the world. But in my view, I thought they were to people that were, you know, like the Aero Farms, uh, Dave from Aero Farm or Irving from Bowery or any of these other, you know, big leaders that's, you know, look at the world and say, this is an opportunity to do something and I want to make a change here. So it's been really fantastic. And when you think about the challenges you're facing or initially you're doing the CEO role? at the Yeah, list? at first they brought me in to be the chief operating officer. And the belief was that there was just so much photobiology stuff that I had to learn. And one of the founders of Fluence, this gentleman named Nick Clace, absolutely brilliant, brilliant photobiologist, trained himself, not a formal biologist uh, schooling. This was a lighting guy and just made it his mission to understand the relationship between light and plants and life. And everybody believed, and myself included, that learning all of this, you know, deep-seated, you know, pun intended, industry knowledge was going to be critically important to succeed. At the end of the day, it wasn't as important as we all thought. It's very, very important. But, um, you know, it, it turned more into a scaling challenge. You know, the market was pulling us. We didn't have to go out and convince and talk into and sell. It was how do we answer 600 inquiries a day? And then tomorrow it's 900 inquiries. And, you know, how do you get all these people answers and make them, you know, uh, believers in what you're trying to do? And that type of scaling is really tough. It's really, really tough. You know, you can't, you know, it's like saying I'm going to take a house that it takes six months to build and I'm going to build it in six weeks. And I'm going to expect that when I open the front door, it doesn't fall off. And, you know, I turn the sink on and it's the mud isn't running out of the faucet. And that's kind of what happens when you take a, at the end of the day, we're selling hardware. You know, you got to put stuff together. You have to take bits and bobs and somebody's got to put it together. Somebody's got to test it. Somebody's got to ship it. And, you know, one day you try to make one and then the next day you try to make 10. And then one day somebody says, I need you to make 10,000 today. That's been the hardest, hardest thing here really, you know, being kind of a victim of our own success, that, you know, the only way to realistically do this and do it perfectly was to slow down and be a lot more deliberate. But when the market is pulling, you can't, you can't slow down, they'll go to somebody else. And, you know, it was trial by fire, very, very lumpy. But going back to what, you know, I was trained and, and mentored in that every one of these potentially negative experiences can be flipped into something very positive. That came true in almost every situation because there was a lot of challenges in going as fast as we went. I know it's something would be impossible to encapsulate in a podcast episode, but when you think of the experience you've had scaling 
extremely fast, as you've alluded to several times. Companies that find themselves in that position, and I imagine in this industry, there, there may be others and, and companies that could be at that point that are listening. But how do you think about tackling a problem like that just at a really high level? Like, What are the key things companies to be, to be thinking about if to exponentially scale successfully? I would say it comes down to two things primarily. You need great people and complete you know, uh, this is what everybody's going to say. You need great people. You cannot do all of the things that you need, need to do yourself. And it has to be great people that you can trust. And the second thing is going along with that with great people is you need to give them a very clear picture of where you want to go. And then you need to get the hell out of the way and let them go and make sure that they feel like they can fail fast because the speed required to keep up with what's going on here almost demands rapid failure and rapid redos. You just no deliberate time allowance for, for really anything. Product development, you know, customer strategy, distribution, global footprint of manufacturing, supply chain, yeah, on and on and on and on, accounting system, finance, HR. Oh my God, how do we make sure that all these people we brought in, there were 75 people when I got here, now there's 250 and you know, when's the last time we did a review? Oh man, we forgot. We got to put a policy in to review all the employees. It's just, it never ends. And I think that when you're embarking on something like that, understanding how important it is to have absolute superstars. And if you don't have them, you got to act fast. And I would say that, you know, some of my learnings here were when you're going this fast, failing fast includes making decisions about people and then undoing those quickly. You know, I, I know the, you know, the view of the world is, you know, measure twice, cut once when it comes to hiring. When you're going this fast, you can only do so much diligence. Sure. You got to get people in. You got to let them run and see, give them feedback. But if you come to the conclusion that you possibly have made a mistake, you got to undo that mistake very, very quickly. Because every day that is not addressed, it it's exponentially getting worse. And I would say that that was one of the things I, I learned that lesson the hard way. You know, oh, I, they were just a little bit more if they just can give them a chance. No, no, you you actually can't. We're going too fast to have give you another chance. And so I would say, yeah, scaling and being crystal clear on with, because when you're going this fast, it always comes back. What are we doing? Why are we doing this? Is this related to that? And then explaining to people as opposed to managing what they're doing or directing what they're doing, really telling them over there, that's where we want to go. You know, you guys got to figure out how to get there. Mm. And if you want my feedback, come back and tell me, but I'm just telling you, we got to get over there. We got to get over there in two weeks. And it sounds like that's something that comes up during the hiring process, right? You're like, you're about to board a roller coaster, just be forewarned. Fair warning, right? If you have a heart condition, this is not, (laughs) this is not a good ride for you. But yeah, yeah. And you get into all the classic business problems. Like how do you make sure that you're bringing the right person on board? The last thing in the world you want to do is bring somebody on that isn't the right person and the team and the culture. And I get all that, but in this market and it's that fast and there's such a shortage of talent that of people that really understand the market, you've got to go outside, you know, the network, bring people in from the outside and then just give them the authority and and hold them accountable. It's tough, really tough. I get the sense that anyone who makes it through that process, you sort of become battle-tested and hardened and even the cohesiveness as a team. Yeah. Everyone that can get you through through a ride like that would seem to be really good for strengthening the culture of a company. It is like a family. No more like it than in, in any company I've ever been in. I mean, I've I worked at a company for 20 years. I became very, very close with the people over that amount of time, these are people that I'm friends with, that I went to weddings and anniversaries and children's births and children's weddings. But what I went through at Fluence with this team of people that I now have, you know, what we went through in 16, 18 months is about 15 years of someplace else. And it's, you know, there's, it's different leadership, it's different uh, coaching, it's different mentoring. It's, yeah, it's just got to really make sure that you're attuned to what's going on with people. Because one thing you can count on, they're all overloaded. They don't have time. They're working 20-something hours a day. They're waking up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, and they're checking their phones. They're, they're committed. There's no question about work ethic and determination. But the other side of that is if you don't check in with them and a week goes by, a week in this world is like a year in the world that I was working in before. And making the time, even though there's times that I just want to you know, put it down and 
do something else. Like, how are you doing? Is everything okay? Do you get what's going on? Rather than focusing on whatever the problems are, stepping back and letting people know that, look, I care about your well-being here. If, if you're not in a good place, talk to me about it. Because I know that all these other things I'm counting on you to do, you're not going to get done if you don't feel like you understand what's happening. So, I get the sense that that process that they went through in the scaling prepared you to some extent for what happened when COVID hit as a team. Yeah. Yeah. And the pivot that we had to do was brutal. I mean, it was one day, how do we go from, you know, shipping 5 million a month to $10 million a month to how do we full stop, just stop. Nobody wants anything. And what do we do for the next two months? A lot of fights, arguments, tears, screaming, yelling, but these types of things are good. They bring a team together. And you get to understand really what's at the root of where people are at. And, you know, obviously the whole situation with COVID was, is just a tragedy globally, but what it allowed me to do, at least with the team at Fluence is to really pull us that much closer together. You know, talking about twice a day calls, just check-ins. What are you seeing? What are we seeing? How do you see things? And that building that, those relationships and that trust was invaluable. So just to give an overview of Fluence, can, for the benefit of the listener, can you describe what the current product offerings are? And Sure. Yeah, we're a fully roadmap? LED lighting system company. We have products that are suitable for greenhouses, uh, top lights, vertical grows, stack grows for cannabis, stacked grows for vertical farming. There's four primary types of lights. The, there's a top light that is your typical greenhouse light that's way up above the plants. There's a multi-bar light that is in vertical grows. There's a vertical vegetable light that's very specific. And then we have a whole controls portfolio of communication protocols that the lights communicate with sensors inside the grow and send all that data to a processing platform that helps the farmer or the grower understand what's going on in different parts of the grow. So we've really evolved over the last three or four years from probably 99% cannabis to more like 60-40, cannabis, 40% commercial ag. We call commercial ag, which is anything that's not cannabis, vegetables, yeah. leafy greens, flowers even. And you know, we're not losing in cannabis. The market is growing. It's so big, but I felt like diversification was key and taking all of the science. The company was such a heavy science company when I got there, really cut its teeth on trying to understand how you validate certain types of light recipes with very specific types of cultivars of plants. And that attention to detail is really what separated Fluence in the early days from everybody else that was making a light. And it was very, very similar to my days at Frame, going back to that discussion about optics when, when LumaLeds came to us and said, we need something to capture all this light. You know, we came up with certain form factors. I'm talking about heights and diameters and attach points that are now the standard in the industry. You know, the 25.6 millimeter round optic is, we came up with that number for a very specific reason. Fast forward to Fluence, Fluence is the exact same thing. You know, the top light footprint, our spider, what we call it, which is a light with six, eight, whatever amount of bars, you know, you have imitations, the greatest form of flattery. These standards have been established and everybody that's coming out with lights now is coming out with this form factor. So, you know, what we're trying to do is make sure that we base everything that we do on research and science. And we want to be able to go to growers and say, you know, either talk to our customers or talk to our research partners. We're not going to try to sell you a bag of goods here. This is what we did to validate, you know, what we're telling you. And it's, well, so far it's worked. Is there a recent client win that you can think of where, you know, you partnered with them to really figure out a solution that would best fit their needs? Yeah, there's a few. I mean, it's not too recent. Our relationship with Bowery, uh, Shenandoah Farms, fantastic. It's been, you know, it's a lot of interaction and research and proving and trial and error. We've just validated a, a light recipe for cucumbers in Europe that is now the de facto recipe, and we're winning. These are massive, massive projects. I don't know about naming any of these specific partners yeah, ne necessarily, fine. but and we're, we just won a big vertical farm project in Singapore, and I'm sure you're aware that's a hub of you know, the kind of the source of, of funds for vertical farming. A lot of the big U.S. firms are being backed by this Singapore sovereign fund. 
And they take food safety and security very, very serious there. So we've had some big wins over there as well. It's just nice to see, you know, what Osram wanted was to globalize the business. It was a very North American business. Um, it was a bit intimidating at first. I remember in my interview, what they told me is, uh, you know, if we lose a job in Russia, we're going to come and ask you why. And I was like, okay, I've never even been to Russia. And I don't even know what to tell you. But, it, you know, their view, and they were right. The world is moving fast. You got to put a team of people on the ground in these places and understand the dynamics of what's going on in these markets so we can quickly react and attack. And, you know, because we were backed by such a big, big multinational with a massive footprint around the world of sales people and technical people and operational people, it was a lot easier than it was if we were just going at this alone. It would have been very, very difficult. Where are you seeing the most innovation happening in the LED space now? In terms of what? Just in terms of like, you know, because at some point there's limits to what you can do with the technology itself. Is it in the applications or do you feel, you know, having been at the forefront of the, the growth in, in LED, are there opportunities there for new things that are that you? Yeah, I think yeah. It, from an LED technology in itself, you know, it boils down to it's a diode. Right? Sure. It's a computer chip that lights up the Moore's law kind of phenomenon around LEDs, it's getting to the end. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a photon electron guy. But what I do know is that, you know, squeezing another five or 10% out of LEDs today is not like, you know, doubling every year for the last 10 years. So you're getting to that point on performance that you're almost at the end of the line. The price is ridiculously low. You can't squeeze any more out of it. It's complete commodity. So what we see and what we feel, there's two kind of frontiers here that are ripe for some more exploration. Number one is figuring out how you can tailor a light recipe to a specific cultivar of a specific plant. Not every single tomato, not every single cannabis, but you know, Merlis tomatoes. How can I genetically do something between tissue culture and lighting that can make it so that Merlis tomato plant will grow 20% more? And we're doing a lot of work in that kind of vein with cannabis strains, with lettuce cultivars, with tomatoes, with cucumbers. So there's a lot there. I mean, it takes a lot of research and it takes even starting to get with companies like Bayer and Monsanto and Syngenta, you know, they're formulating seeds and working with these people to understand the applications. But then on the other side of it, there's the digitization of what's happening. So these lights are now turning into data receivers and I could see a point in the future where the light may not be a transaction. The light may be a Trojan horse. Take the light. You don't have to pay for it, but process and assimilate data for you every month. And you give me 20 bucks a month for every light that I'm telling you that this part of your grow is too hot or there's not enough you know, air movement over here or you know, whatever. Using the light as more of a smart farming diagnostic tool which isn't directly LED, but the fact that it's LED enables you to digitize the whole thing because now you have it's solid state electronics. So I would say we're not going to see that much, I don't think, innovation in terms of the pure LED light, like somebody come out with to say, this is the light. But I think you're going to see a lot of great companies come out that have AI capability, sensor data management capabilities. And then I think the relationship between strains and the recipes to maximize those strains, especially when you get into vertical farming too. Now, now we're talking about a, a Bowery or, the, or an aero farm. Think of how valuable it would be to them if together we were able to unlock something that allowed them to even get 5% more oh, yeah. output. I mean, you've seen these facilities. 5% output more is it goes right to the bottom line. Sure. So that's kind yeah. of what we're focusing on. Lots of exciting innovations. What would you say is a, a tough question you've had to ask yourself recently? I'm thinking, what's not a tough question? <laughs> <laughs> How can we do all this? I get that all the time. Why can't we just slow down and focus on one thing? And that's when I'm done and retired from this, I will probably have a better answer than I have today. But it's, you know, this is very much, you got to make hay when the sun shines. And this is a fast going faster industry. So I would say some of the more difficult questions I have is, you know, getting people to understand that, yeah, we have to actually do everything. I'm sorry. I get it. You can't be everything to everybody. I know all the cliches out there in business. You got to focus. But in an in a industry, in a market like this, I think that if you're not prepared to pivot, to be flexible and to adapt to what's happening, you're going to have a really tough time. 
Yeah, it does feel like a once in a lifetime moment for this industry, or at least a bit a significant wave. I feel that way. I felt like when I came in at 18 in 2018 and was looking at the Canadian cannabis situation, I was just dumbstruck by what was going on and the trips that I would take up there and look at the magnitude of these greenhouses. Like, you're really going to grow that much cannabis? What in the world are you going to do with it all? Right. So that was my first kind of like, okay, wait a minute. They're going to need like 20,000 times more product than we can physically produce. How are we going to do this? To a a vertical farm where it's, you're kind of like learning on the fly. There's no book. Oh, this is how you set up a vertical farm and this is how you do it properly. You know, and, you know, literally, you know, leaking fertigants and, you know, lights that are shorting and plants that aren't growing right. It's every day there was something that needed to be figured out. And just reminding the team, like, guys, we're in uncharted territory here. When the customer calls and says something's not working, go figure it out. You know, and that's like an occurrence every day, you know, because you don't have anybody that is going to leave the huge vertical farm down the street from Bowery and go grow to Bowery. You're going to go hire growers that probably have experience growing little teeny sections. And it was the same thing with cannabis when we went up to Canada and even in the U.S. now, you know, the growers, you know, great growers. I grew 10, 20 plants in my basement every year and it was the best cannabis ever. Here you go. Here's a greenhouse. Here's 15,000 plants, you know, or here's a stack three level grow where the temperature at the top is four degrees different than the temperature at the bottom. And they just, they have no idea. So, and then when you put the lights in and the plants don't grow, guess what? Oh, it's gotta be the light's fault. You know, so they call us. <laughs> so then, you know, we became pretty good at figuring out how to sit with a grower and say, it's really the way you're running your system. And we're not pointing fingers here, but let us help. And that's where we kind of adopted this mantra of, you know, consultative selling. We want to help you grow, you know, buy our lights, don't buy our lights. Either way, we want to come in there and help you grow. And this company has built a fantastic amount of goodwill with our customers that aren't customers that never bought the light from us, but that we went in and helped them understand that it was too much water or not enough nutrients or not enough airflow to let them know that all we care about is the customer succeeding. You know, you'll come around, you'll buy from us eventually, or you'll give us a shot eventually. But um, really what we're here to make sure is help to understand how people can grow smarter. You know, and that's our tagline. We live by it. And it sounds like just to bring it all full circle, this idea that you introduced earlier, this idea of building solid networks. And yeah. Relationships. relationships pay yeah. Forward Trust. The There's so much going on here and we've had our lumps. I mean, look, we ramped fast. We, you know, brought forward technology that was not fully supported by some of our suppliers because we didn't know what we didn't know and resulted in some problems that our customers that was, you know, a few big hiccups that we had to go out and, you know, go say, we're sorry and fix it. And that's tough. That's really, really tough if you've never had to do anything like that. But again, I'd go back to, those are some of the best character building, relationship building events that you can encounter, but you have to embrace it and you have to, you know, you have to be all in, not be afraid. Yeah. Well, David, uh, definitely a wide ranging conversation. I want to thank you for uh, sharing a little bit of your backstory. <laughs> and uh, all right, this was great. I never yeah. had people ask me questions <laughs> like this, so I just, you, I got it all out. I feel great. <laughs> I feel great. Therapy I session. I can mention complete. Nick Scarfo and Dan Casey in the same conversation. I'm I'm having a good day. <laughs> we'll make sure we tag them and we, we promote it on socials as well. But uh, is, where's the best place for folks to just learn more? You can go to flu. It's fluence.science, right? Yeah, fluence.science on our website. It gives you everything that's going on. There's a quite a bit of change coming. We're again, yep. going through another massive growth year. We're probably going to double again this year and, you know, just keeping up with everything. We're at a number of uh, big trade shows that the world's opening up again. So that's the best way to find us. Very good. Well, thanks again for your time, David. And I uh, hope we get to connect at an upcoming uh, conference as well. Sometime. Same here, Harry. <laughs> Anytime. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Special thanks to David for coming on the show and sharing his story. As always, full show notes available at verticalfarmingpodcast.com. Thanks to our Season 3 title sponsor, Cultivated. If you're looking for a vertical farm and don't know where to start or which technology would suit your needs, reach out to them today. Best of all, their service is free because they work on behalf of their partners. Learn more at cultivated.com, and that's spelled C-U-L-T-I-V-A-T-D.com. Just leave out the last E. Learn more about early bird registration discounts for Indoor AgCon at indoor.ag. 
and save $100 off registration with our promo code VFPOD2021. Podcast production and marketing provided by Fullcast. Sign up for our free podcast brainstorm at fullcast.co forward slash VFP15 and learn how a podcast may be helpful for your business. Don't forget to leave us that rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash VFP. We'll be sure to read those out as we did during this intro. Tune in next week for my conversation with Thomas Oberlin of Fazenda Urbana. It's one of the first vertical farming companies in Brazil. It'll be nice to get some international flavor. So looking forward to that conversation. Until we meet again, here's to your health. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which includes any links mentioned in the episode, as well as a full show transcription, visit verticalfarmingpodcast.com. There, you can sign up for our email list to be notified when new episodes are published.